welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I'm Joel, this is episode number 61. And uh, yeah, if there was any part of me that was in denial that these are times of deep change and complexity and uncertainty, that part is no longer in denial. And I hope this finds you well in these times and, and well resourced. And really, we're going to be exploring this kind of topic in today's podcast. I'm going to be talking with Amy Elizabeth Fox. She's the co-founder, along with Erica, who was on the last podcast, of Mobius Executive Leadership. And they do deep transformational work with senior leaders and CEOs from Fortune 500 companies. And we're going to be exploring today what she sees as the qualities that coaches are being called to embody in these times. Yeah, how can we be a potent transmission of of transformation for our clients? Let's dive in this time for the podcast with Amy Elizabeth Fox. So Amy, it's great to be with you. How's uh, things with you right now? Wonderful to be with you also, Joel. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. And I'm sure... Uh, my circumstance, like so many of our listeners, is uh, turned a bit upside down right now, and um, it's a very, very particular kind of time. Uh, I find this COVID period, and I'm learning a lot. I, I would say it's a time of really fertile development internally, and I think also culturally. Mm. Is this, is there like something in particular that stands out about what you've learned? It could be a lot of things, but mm. you know, personally. Mm. That's a lovely question. I mean, first of all, to say I'm in a very privileged position and many people are being met with much more challenging circumstances than I individually am grappling with right now. So I just want to acknowledge anything I would say is already from a relative luxury perspective on the continuum of impacts people are facing. But um, I lead a business that has uh, does very immersive, high-touch, intimate, in-person leadership workshops. And so um, the virus has been very significant downturn in our business and guiding the process of really thinking about what's essential, um, what, what really needs to be conserved and protected in this environment about what we're doing and what we've been a stand for in the industry and I think in the world has been one of the primary focuses uh, that I would say uh, I have, Joel. But equally, I really see this as a time for inner repair and inner restoration. So for myself, I really had a daily practice of coming to as many interactions as I possibly can, uh, really listening for and looking for what are the opportunities for apology, for uh, refinement, for listening more deeply. As a practitioner, I see it as a moment of really bowing down and being available to life as a mending time in a way. Um, and I think of that institutionally, you know, what is ours to protect, what's ours to dissolve, what's ours to let go of as we enter a very new world. And personally, I also really am reflecting on how can I use this time as one to create a more whole fabric in the pattern of relationships in the community that I've built and how I show up as a leader, how I show up as a friend and how I show up as a teacher. Um, I think it's cultivated a different kind of, not just presence, but humility um, in me. And it, humility has a sweet perfume. It leaves you feeling wholer at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I echo that. Like there's something, I mean, the first time we connected, we were both grieving, you know, I think it was earlier on in the crisis unfolding and um, that kind of um, tenderizes me, you know, and and, uh, sort of points to the places where perhaps I'd become maybe a bit arrogant or, you know, habituated or reified around my ideas about who I was and what the world is and, so there's this been this kind of tenderizing process of, and humility, you know, but which actually allows for me to become more permeable and uh, essential. Yeah, I I love the notion of tenderizing because it has embedded in it the notion of becoming more tender, which I also feel, and I do think that because so much of our sort of predictable future is now shaky and uh, much less certain that everybody has had to let go of images of who they were and what was coming and what they had built and what was established or taken for granted is now um, clearly uh, on shakier ground. And it did come with some uh, almost a wrenching grief for me. I hadn't known that I was so attached to the future dream of what I thought I was contributing or what I thought I was building until it became queasy. <laughs> um, but I think there is a kind of, you know, egoic or identity structure um, that leaders use to propel their contribution and their ambition and their drive. Um, and it's very different to let go of that and then still wake up each day and think, how can I serve? Um, yeah. that's, a, that's a different quality of... Uh, it's a different source maybe of fuel and of willingness uh, than a certain goal that you're heading for and sort of chipping away at that goal, which is perhaps how I was driving the business up until now. So it's beautiful what you said, the tenderizing. I feel that also. And I, I feel, I don't feel any less on fire. I just feel like the flame got purified. Mm. Well, I think we're, we're, we're touching in some big topics here. Uh, that we're going to unpack, you know, in a sense, like what are these times calling forth from us? And um, I would love just first to ask you about Mobius, um, you know, the, the, this um, organization you've created and um, perhaps you could just kind of introduce the listeners to what that is and, you know, what the work is you've been doing. Although, yeah, we've, you know, there's been this big uh, disruption, but what, what is Mobius and what is it about? Yeah. Well, given your audience, Joel, I'd love to do that in two ways. I'll sort of say how I might speak about the company from a public perspective, and then I I might take a step back and say how I would think about it, what I'm trying to do from a practitioner perspective. Um, So from a public perspective, uh, we founded Mobius as a leadership development firm in 2005. My co-founders, my sister Erica Ariel Fox, who lectures at Harvard Law School's program on negotiation, and Alex Kuhlman and I all had been teaching uh, negotiation and difficult conversations training for a number of years. And in 2004, there was a trend in the industry that said something like, the two-day skills training you just did, Amy, was great, but what could you do in a day? And that one-day training was super helpful, but what could you do in a brown bag lunch? And honestly, I thought to myself, nothing. I can do absolutely nothing of value for you in a one-hour infomercial. Um, And... I just felt like the, the contribution we were trying to make was in jeopardy of being denuded and denuded and distilled down to something so commoditized, it wouldn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. 
And maybe I'll just take a step aside for a moment to say something personal about why I started Mobius at that moment. Um, I was uh, very, very sick in my early 20s. And in the process of dealing with my illness, I really had a wonderful chance to see how precious life is and to really feel the impulse arise in me very naturally to want to make life better and more just and more wholesome. And I felt at that moment in 2004, God didn't spare my life so that I could do something trivial. And I really wanted to explore, and Alex and Erica were generous enough to join the exploration. What would happen if we created a company that went counter trend and went literally the other 360 degrees the other way and just made the programs longer, deeper, made the value proposition of those programs wider. Um, and we said, we really want to work with organizations that are eager to change, are on the cutting edge of a new paradigm, want to take their executives through a personally powerful, disruptive inner experience that will free them up from some of the long habituated mindsets, fears, habits, behaviors that get in their way, and to co-evolve an interdisciplinary approach to development, to executive development. Uh, and over the last 15 years, we've had the great privilege of working with some of the seminal thinkers in the fields of organizational development and adult development and neuroscience to bring that, the worlds of sort of psychology and organizational change together with more esoteric, spiritual, and mystical energetic practices, and to create a sort of a wild circus of practitioners that run the gamut from top team interventionists to theater actors and pantomime artists and uh, painters and poets. And that uh, tribe or a global community of practice has blossomed into a global network we're healed together and weave our various expertise into some kind of a wild fabric of joy. Mm, nice. Mm. Um, and um, I, lo I love hearing about that. And what kind of clients do you work with? Just to get a sense, you know, that, that, yeah. like, yeah. yeah, I think one of our mandates has been to try to mainstream um, or translate, cross-model translate from the worlds of philosophy, psychology, spirituality into the worlds of business. So our clientele have been very um, traditional Fortune 500 companies on the one hand, and we've also um, pledged ourselves to contribute to the social fabric of the world. So we give away about $2 million a year in pro bono coaching and leadership development to a wide array of organizations from campaigns for national government to um, a lot of NGOs and nonprofits that we believe in and are doing amazing work on behalf of issues we all care about. So it's been wonderful to see that there's a real hunger and receptivity for depth work in the business world. One that I think has blossomed over the last 15 years and become more and more porous and receptive, if not yearning for this kind of deeper inner work. And at the same time to use the resources we've amassed in the private sector to bring them to bear on behalf of the common good, um, which is something very dear to all of our hearts. Yeah, because I want to ask you about that before, I, I, you know, are you finding, like you just said, that actually in the business world, there is a hunger 
for this kind of depth. And, you know, and you mentioned um, combining these multidisciplinary approaches, neuroscience and poetry and spirituality and esotericism. And, you know, um, are you finding people are actually open to that kind of depth work? And I, I wonder like what the key is for you for that. Cause I, I, I'll just say, I think a lot of people listening will resonate with this. And, you know, one of the questions we always get is like, how do you introduce people to that? kind of depth work you know that um in a way that has them you know really go into the journey i think there are a few success factors and i think this question that you're posing joel is is a question all of us will walk for the next the rest of our careers which is how do we become more and more an embodied transmission of a invitation for people to dive into who they really are and I think some of that has to do with skillful language and using frameworks that are more familiar, less threatening, uh, more easily adapted in uh, business settings as the doorway or the invitation you make. Um, so as an example, I'm much more likely to explicitly talk about adaptive leadership or change agility or working with emergence or a VUCA world um, as the sort of introduction to a client system of what it is we're doing, because all of the deeper work is in the service of being able to meet what we're seeing now exactly and precisely, that leaders are on the frontier of their own ability to plan, to strategize, to know. And when you move by life from the place of being a knower and an expert and somebody who can use exclusively their intellectual capacities to contribute to somebody who's got a world that's changing so fast they can't keep up with it. And in that volatility, they're forced to realize the unpredictable nature of life. And in that vulnerability of the window, when you realize I can't rely exclusively on my mental faculties, that's an open door where that yearning starts to become a natural outcome. And I feel like this is actually the precise and exact moment when those of us who have been cultivating other inner resources, qualities of wisdom, qualities of connection, qualities of intuition, qualities of stillness, um, have the opportunity to start to help people along that path or that lifelong journey of development because life has really forced everybody to realize that their intellectual uh, problem solving and the sort of rational planning function is insufficient to meet the complexity that we find ourselves in now. Mm -hmm. so lang language and framing is one part of, I think, the success factor. Yeah. I think, I think the second one is distinguishing between the hallmark version of what I'm talking about, where for example, you might just be um, talking pop psychology or aphorisms or have done a really shallow um, cultivation in yourself so that you can really only bring somebody, you know, two knots down in the water. I'm not a, I'm not a sea diver, so that metaphor may not be perfect, but um, that's quite different than practitioners, and I'm sure many of your listeners are in this category, practitioners who've been on their own psycho-spiritual development journey for a long time, have done enough of their own work to have a certain degree of inner freedom relative to their early childhood hurts or their life narrative, and they bring a different quality of immediacy and receptivity and listening from a very 
refined quiet. So just their way of being is already disruptive to a habit of speed and um, synthesizing information very quickly rather than letting the complexity and nuance unfold itself. So I think the second success factor is having committed to the practitioner pathway of lifelong learning that then has you show up as somebody who's different enough to spark a quality of curiosity or a quality of disarmament just because you are not so different that you're scary, but you're different enough that you present a different possibility. Um, so I think that's a second success factor. And perhaps the third one is joy. You know, I just think our organizations are built on so many premises that are anti-life. Your most organizations are pushing autonomy versus interdependence and community. They're pushing a kind of guardedness or armament versus a certain kind of intimacy and authenticity. They have people feeling like they're supposed to have it all together and always be in the driver's seat versus needing each other's inputs and ideas and really constantly knowing you don't know. Um, so that curiosity rather than certainty um, is, is, a, is a much more quicksilver mental model. Um, Anyway, this sort of anti-embodiment, anti-intimacy, anti-emotion world, I think has caused people to have to have significant strategies for addiction and numbing because naturally we have emotions. Naturally, we do need each other. Naturally, we live in a body. So in order to operate as, as the sort of mechanistic way of organizational life has been, Everybody has strategies for down-regulating their emotional experience, disconnecting from self-contact, dissociating from their body. And all of that strips you not just of negative emotions and needs, but also life force and vitality and uh, capacity for reverence and rapture. So I am very, very much believing that part of the way we help business to evolve is to come in with a less bridled quality of joy and aliveness that is itself an infectious capacity. Mm, well, I think you just like so eloquently articulated um, for me this this kind of emerging or um, you know this wave of of like how do we lead? Who can we be? How can we collaborate? Um, you know, that, that it's like com coming through, you know, and um, um, that's one of the things right now in this podcast that Coach is Rising, um, we're trying to, you know, articulate like what kind of leadership, what kind of um, ways of being and ways of collaborating are needed in these coming times, you know, um, in this coming decade, even, you know, not just in the short term with COVID, but in the this next decade will be a decade of disruption so yeah um just to just to name some like that, that that quality of of like refinement of perceptive faculties like that transformational way of being that a coach can hold you know as as like um there is a transmission of a, of a transformational potential that can open up for the client and um um let, let, let's continue that conversation because I, I think um, it fits for me of like why 
I always felt in the early years a bit secretive about my spiritual practice, except I just knew that it was like the core, you know, like, and I include in that, like the, my developmental practice, my shadow work, my, my body work, like all intertwined. But it seems now like with this uncertainty and, um, you know, the VUCA world that we live in, it's like, it's just become, um, you know, it's just, it's obvious to everybody that these, this stillness and spaciousness and perceptivity and attunement are qualities that, that we need as, as species. But could you say a bit about that for you? Like what, what comes up there and um, what you see as being the qualities we need? Yeah, I mean, that's such an intricate question that you asked. I, I, let me see if I can answer it as a couple of different threads, Joel. So first of all, I just resonate enormously with what you're saying about the qualities that leaders will need to have in the coming decade. Um, and just to reiterate some of or, or reinforce some of what you said, I think the first is a cultivation of spaciousness um, and stillness. And it seems pretty clear that we want to be able to access intelligence wider than our own. And that stillness is both space and vast intelligence being made available. Because when I listen and I can disidentify with all of the inputs and stimulation and structures of the current reality, I become more available to download what is not yet born or to access the field of wider possibilities. Um, I've learned a lot of this from my mystical study with my teacher, Thomas Hubel, over the last five years. But it, it's, I, I've had the immediate experience of getting access to information that was non-local information out of that stillness. So it's not just that stillness or spaciousness or a mindfulness practice helps us to calm down and host more of our felt experience, although that in and of itself is useful, helping people to metabolize the emotional resonance of the day or deal with the anxiety and uncertainty they might be feeling. But it's that the spaciousness itself is a gateway to a, a vast belt of uh, higher knowledge. Uh, so I think the notion that you can't lead the future or build an innovative, um, full creative possibility for your future or of the organization without accessing something wider than your own perspective or your own immediate viewpoint, I think that's going to become more and more clear. So let's say stillness practices are one important lever. Go ahead. Can I, can I ask you, because I think there's, um, before we move on, there's some things in there, like you said, like non-local information and um you know the sense of the future perhaps um my, these are my words but like emerging future like could you could you like walk us in no you know that what what is it like when you're tuning to that like um or yeah accessing it yeah i mean in the case of the non-local intelligence and just to make it very accessible to people it could be as simple as being a group facilitator and having one part of your attention on that stillness and and the stillness directs your interventions of where you put your attention and uh, that quiet capacity actually has a wider observation field than my own sight so if i make my interventions not just based on what i've consciously registered of the group experience but what, where the stillness is pulling my attention, that would be an example. That's a very simple example. A different example might be when the crisis happened, 
it came to me in one of my morning meditations, just an impulse to gather. That's how it occurred to me. Like I had a felt sense physically, I need to gather people. And I started that day two offerings, one a free weekly webinar with Mobius senior experts presenting information I thought would be of value to people on adaptive leadership and leading in complexity and embodied leadership and somatic practices. And a gathering of our global practitioner community every other week just to share support and solidarity and, and study together during this time to go deep together rather than to go outward in this moment. Um, and so both of those uh, literal projects, you could say they're external expressions, their arising didn't come from a strategic planning process. It came from an, a felt sense of an impulse of what was needed in the cultural architecture of my world. Um, so that, that would be another example. I mean, there are a bit more psychic examples I could share, but, but for the purpose of the conversation, let's, let's say that. Well, well just uh, before we move on to another quality, it's like in my coaching, that's really important to me, you know, to be in um, um, a space of, of um, in spaciousness and in presence together and beginning to, to kind of attune with my client to what is emerging in them, in me, and in our connection. And, um, you know, like to that, that impulse, you know, like there's a creative impulse that's coming into being. And um, th that if I'm in that strategic mind, you know, of problem solving perhaps, or trying to get somewhere, or, you know, like um, actually I'm coming from a sense of lack, like there's something where we should, there's a place where we should be, where we're not now and when we're in that place, then we're in the right place. You know, those things can kind of dampen down on that kind of refined um, emergent kind of information that kind of pours forth into experience and actually begins to crystallize into form. You know, like I always um, thought that oh, I, I was, was like, okay, I'm going to develop practices and have a theory of change and then take my client there. But these days it's more like the client emerges out of the moment and that begins to crystallize, like you're saying, into these projects. Yeah, there are also many strands in what you just said, but I want to capture a couple of them. One, that you move from a sort of distracted uh, mode, but also a mode that's driving somewhere into a, a following mode where you're really trusting that the client's highest intelligence, you're relating to their highest possibility and letting that guide the conversation. Um, that's an inductive way of working. It's not just a quality of presence. It's also, I am literally calling in or presencing and, and inducting their highest possibility. Um, and then that, if you really trust that your presence and your attunement is capable of creating a field intelligence between you and that that field intelligence then becomes a container in which more of who they are inspirationally can download. Uh, that's a very, very different way of working than driving a theory of change on top of what they're saying and trying to make sense of it through the lens of your model, whatever it might be. So I love what you said. You also did something intuitively. I'm not sure you, you were consciously doing, but I'll just name it you created a kind of morphic field between us when you were speaking. So it's not just that I'm bringing my presence. I'm also really widening an embrace, an energetic embrace to receive you. 
And then you start to occur energetically in me, somatically, psychically, uh, uh, emotionally. And then the information transfer is way more than just what you're saying or what you're sharing explicitly. The information transfer is also becomes a kind of porous field between us. You feel me feeling you, and that has a restorative impact. And I feel your felt sense. And that has informational guidance for me as your coach, as your facilitator, as somebody who's accompanying you. Um, mm. And there was a third thing that I just wanted to add to the mix, which is pace. You know, I think one of the ways to create that kind of presence is to cultivate not just stillness, but slowness, slowness and patience. And that when I can disrupt somebody's habit of moving faster than their own natural rhythm, which most of us are guilty of at least some of the time in modern life. And I can be a platform for slowing down. Several things happen. The foreground and background of our attention starts to be more capable of noticing nuance and subtlety. That's number one. Number two, I'm more likely as a coach or a facilitator to notice your unconscious when it sends up little cues of disturbance. So if I pay attention, this is a practice Thomas has taught me, if I pay attention to the anomalies of your communication or the little aside humorous comments that you make or the little somatic signals that you send, and I slow us down to put those in stark relief as if that communication landed in me and mattered, you start to have a bridge to your own unconscious process that is a pot of gold. I think that's exquisite. Um, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm deeply touched by that. Mm. And yeah, I just want to say, say for that, mm. I can feel <laughs> perhaps this is one of those moments where I can also feel um, the, the impulse in me to, to clarify that what you just spoke about. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go with that. Um, and welcome being touched. Yeah, and before we move from being touched, mm. I just want to say that the thing we're talking about has a luminous essence. Like, it's, it's real presence. It's real contact. It's real love. And the reason it touches you is that that is, you know, it's, it's like they say love is stronger than death. You know, that teaching is right. There is nothing that isn't penetrable no hurt that anyone has ever experienced that can't be touched by a quality of love. Mm. Yeah. And I'm just tracking my experience. And so, so as you shared what you shared and that's what you share now, like I noticed a moment ago, it was like, I could feel where I couldn't be in coherence, you know, like I, I wanted to move on quickly mm. because I was because what I was feeling felt too much mm. just, just slightly, but it, but it created a little bit of like automaticity or, yeah. And so I was just tracking that and settling. Yeah. But that's, this is exactly the edge of the, our current human uh, competency. We've become so used to bite-sized emotional contact and truncated closeness and uh, as I said, the sort of false autonomy of emotional resonance that we, we haven't built a very wide container for deep emotion and true connection. 
and it flusters all of us because it's so unusual and it's so um, powerful. You know, it just really matters. Mm. And so that edge of this is too much, the notion that I am my inner life when it's fully alive and raw is too much. That belief shapes so much of institutional life, relational life, collective numbness. It's why there's so much we don't talk about, so much we don't look at, so much shadow work to be done is because of the, the premise of too muchness. So I see some of our job as practitioners to get wider and wider capacity to host, to hold what happens and what arises inside us and what we meet in the other. And in some ways, you could argue that that's the same journey of wise, wise cultivation leaders now need to go on. How can I host more of life's complexity, life's tragedy, life's intricacy, maybe is the word that comes to me, and not, yeah. run, away, and not run away and not need to numb it and not need to hold it by myself. So perhaps we're talking about another capacity for leaders different from spaciousness, or maybe it's intimately connected. Um, but this sense of, you, you know, you said like, as a practitioner, I can be with somebody and feel the anomalies in a very subtle sense. And um, I'm curious um, how um, a couple of questions come up, like, how do you notice those? You started to give some little examples mm-hmm. But if you're with someone, how do you start to sense those? And then, and then what, what next, you know, like, is it a sense of like um, allowing for a sense of integration to take place so that we become more expanded and then can allow more of life's intricacies and complexities. Mm -hmm. So those are the two questions I have. Mm -hmm. So I guess that perhaps this is, you know, a sort of natural byproduct of my psychotherapeutic training, but I take as a premise that all of us are are to smaller to large degrees traumatized by early childhood experiences, losses, incidents of abuse, um, or just missing attachment functions, right? All of us are, are walk around fundamentally hurt. And that hurt caused us to create compensatory survival strategies that made enormous sense. We're life-saving early in our lives, but are now a, a bit of a sort of an artifact of an earlier time that operates as if it is part of my identity or part of my operating system or part of my way of being. And as a practitioner, if I meet you with open arms and a total investment in investigating what those are, those habits of mind, those habits of relatedness, those habits of self-relationship. And I pay as close attention as I can to all the places your psyche will signal to me how you're contracting your own way of being. And I call your attention to them. They self-repair. It's like putting an evolutionary love stamp or shining a golden light on something that's hurt and Um, shaky and giving it enough holding to self-restore. So I don't think you have to do very much other than notice, name, and then hold in great compassion together what's becoming revealed. Um, And it's my 
duty to not collude in those habits as a practitioner, because then I just reinforce or rigidify that that's required. But I don't have to, I don't even necessarily have to know the story of why that happened. All I have to do is slow down long enough to have us both look. Yeah. And I, I think a couple of big things that come up for me, like one is, yeah, the, the, in coaching, for sure, I see this emergence now of like non-goal oriented coaching, which is actually, it is, um, it's kind of coaching that allows for this emergence, this clarity, um, you know, these, these, what was unconscious to become conscious that, that it allows for that to happen. But at the same time, it's just loving what is, you know, we're not trying to get anywhere. So by being here right now, um, you know, and welcoming our experience, it reveals its depths to us. So that's one thing. Um, but I wanted to ask you, like, um, presumably then, as a practitioner, you're like tuning into almost, it's like someone's, this is my question. I'm, I, I'm sure you'll put it, you'll answer it differently, but you know, someone's like true nature or their coherence and then where they're out of coherence, you know, there has to be some kind of like, Oh, now I can sense where this person may be, um, you know, there's um, a, a pattern here or mm -hmm. um, an unintegrated kind of, trauma or um, emotion and it's kind of out of coherence so you can compare or there's some kind of attunement to the different yeah yeah but i don't want to make it so mysterious no, like right. it's also it's also sometimes pretty obvious you know it's offhanded mm -hmm. comments that are said as deflective humor it's all of a sudden i notice you're not making eye contact um, or all of a sudden I can't feel you in my body anymore. Uh, like there's something that's broken in the relational communication that you're not sending your signal anymore. Or uh, Thomas has this beautiful metaphor that the words start to fall to the ground rather than come across and transmit their energy. So there's lots of these sort of overt behavioral signals that are pretty easy to start to spot actually um, that just pique my interest and then you see where that goes. Um, and sometimes I will literally explicitly name. I, I noticed that, as you said, that you broke eye contact. And I wonder, you know, could we just stop for a moment and, and, and see what might be going on? It could be as simple as naming what I see. Or I might just notice it and start to see, is there, as they continue to speak, can I track a constellation of thoughts that seem more convoluted or more distorted or have a set of assumptions and attributions about life, about the other person, about themselves that are kind of glaringly unusual or uh, stark or harsh or uh, portray the fracture in some overt way. So I don't want to make this sound like uh, it's all a psychic energetic craft, although it is that also, but I do want, I really do think we can all of us train to become better observers and to have a higher tolerance for the tension of slowness so that more of these things become overt and obvious. I also wanted to go back to one thing you said about loving what is, because I think there's a bit of a shadow side of this kind of coaching where you're sort of simply welcoming whatever arises. And I want to make sure I'm unequivocal that I'm also an interventionist. I also 
believe in the power of confrontation. I believe in the um, mm. sort of Zen slap on the back in the sense of saying what you're doing is not helping you. Or if you continue to do that, there are going to be costs in your life, costs in your relationships, costs in your family. And I think part of our moral imperative, as well as the psycho-spiritual need is to be a mirror to somebody and what, what they're doing that isn't so helpful. Um, and I think part of what is entrusted to us as coaches or facilitators is that we're not just going to be neutral emotional support. Uh, and I didn't hear you saying that, but I really want to make sure yeah. I'm being clear. Um, but that we're going to be the, the people with enough courage to confront what is not working. No, I, 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 I agree. And I, I, that's also love, by the way. <laughs> no, I was about to say exactly the same thing. It's like, yeah. you know, I, um, in some sense, like the loving what is includes that. Um, um, well, maybe it's not this, it doesn't include, but there's a ferocity of love. And, in, in, you know, when I'm able to, when I say to my clients, like, you know, what did you just say that you just, I caught, you know, you just, did you hear what you just said? Like, uh, you said that kind of unconsciously. And there's a way that we could skip over what you just said. But let's really look at it because that that's not serving you know that 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 when you said that it took it took it was directly contradictory to your heart's deepest longing or some something like that so that kind of ferocity of like no, but that's gorgeous i mean what you yeah. just said is gorgeous both because of the ferocity and the clarity and the precision of it but also because it's a good example of what we were just talking about right i know you to have this sense of purpose or this value or this quality of mature character. And the thing you just said is inconsistent with that. So pointing out when I say anomalies, one of the things you're listening for are paradoxes that don't live together naturally, unnatural paradox, just like yeah. you just said, an incongruence in my own code of conduct or things that matter. Yeah. And, and I love what you said, you said it unconsciously. So when somebody says something from their unconscious, it has a different frequency that we can learn to spot. Right. And, 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 you know, um, there's something about this, like metaphor, uh, uh, is a metaphor or not, but the idea of a wine tasting, it's like, there, like what you said is like, some of these signs are really obvious. Yeah. So we don't have to make it too kind of uh, esoteric or something, you know, it's right there in front of us and we can become connoisseurs of, you know, the subtlety. So that, as we slow down, as we move into that, that kind of spaciousness and that, that, that pacing where, you know, we can, we can also really like tune into like on a subtle level when there are those inconsistencies as well. So like, like a, a wine taster, you know, uh, over time develops these, you know, distinctions and capacities to sense all the aftertastes and bouquets like that weren't there in the first place. I really love the notion of becoming a development sommelier. I think that's amazing. Um, and I also fully share the notion that this is a lifelong cultivation and, and a practice that has boundless study to it. Uh, I don't think coaching or facilitating another person's development or group process work can be learned in a weekend workshop at all. I think it is exactly as you've conveyed it, Joel, like it's a very refined multi-dimensional, multimodal experience of serving another person. And mm. you can refine the various aspects of that competency skill set literally endlessly. 
and it does become more and more subtle. So all of us need to study, you know, sort of the, the seminal thinking, I believe, in our field of organizational development. You shouldn't be a coach or a facilitator without having had some, in my view, some exposure to Peter Senge's early work on organizational learning or Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety or um, Tom DeLong's work on leadership and vulnerability, I, I, Ron Heifetz's work on adaptive leadership, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy's work in Jen that Jennifer Garvey-Berger has iterated on adult development. I could keep going. There's a whole canon of ideas that I think are important for us to know and technologies to learn. And you, you mentioned sort of the continuum of practitioner development earlier. I think our own inner work in our own psychological work, our shadow work, our body work, all, you know, our devotional practices, our stillness practices, all the ways we mature ourselves are as, in, as important. Our inner work and our own devotional path is as important as all of that technique, technology, and thought leadership. They go hand in hand. This is a vast craft that has an intellectual dimension, a relational dimension, and a, I think a pretty profound inner dimension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um well, let, let, let me see if, um, if there's another quality that comes to mind. You know, we were talking about um, qualities that leaders need to develop, and we could probably include coaches in that. Spaciousness was one, and this kind of, um, you know, ability to perceive incongruency and, 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 and increasing subtlety. But is there anything else that comes to mind in these competencies we're, we're needing in these times? I think two more come to my mind. One is I would call eros, you know, that 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 we are walking vitality uh, and aliveness. You know, this is the quality we started to allude to at the beginning of our conversation. I think everything we can do to embrace and enjoy life, you know, whether it's cooking a beautiful meal or planting a garden or listening to extraordinarily refined music or uh, moving your body or, you know, making love, whatever it is, however you create a sense of erotic aliveness, embodiment, aesthetics, and a reverence for beauty, all of that is presence in a, in a sense. It's the real fabric and texture of full presence. And I think uh, it can literally be a source of inspiration, you know, ending a coaching conversation with a poem and some journaling as a way to use the lyricism of language to elevate the conversation or open an important question for a client. It could be that literal, or it could just be the amount of well-nurtured inner soil you're bringing as a resource to your conversation. Um, but I think Eros and wildness, you know, just being in, engaged with and involved with the mystery of life and the mysterium, um, those glistening qualities of chi, you know, just mm. are very, very important, both for leaders, um, because it's, we're running a marathon here and people are going to need to have great inner resilience and capacity to, over time, contribute and make a difference. But for, as practitioners, it's even more important because I think we're part of the manna from heaven that can help leaders to keep going. And if we come with a full um, palette of experience and 
taste of that beauty, I think we then can widen the lens of their own self-nourishment and their own way of relating to life, which too often gets very narrow and very tight, mm-hmm. very functional. Yeah. It seems like that Eros um, is, is like um, this, what I want to say about that, like this, almost this expression of like, as we open a spaciousness and um, that, that it like become, it can kind of bleed through. It has a channel that it can be fully more fully expressed, you know, as something larger coming through our unique, um, you know, kind of uh, self Joel, you know, and um, that there is a kind of transmission that can take place, you know, like that um, perhaps as we've moved through this like Cartesian dualistic enlightenment era of scientific rationalism, which has brought so much to the world, but it's, it's kind of like, as you alluded to at the beginning, it's like deadened the, it's deadened us in some way, you know, we've become, we've become um, numbed and, and addicted, you know, and, 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 and therefore, like, um, we're, 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 we're materialists, we're consuming so much, perhaps, perhaps, because we're disconnected from this, this eros, this erotic energy that is inherently fulfilling, it's inherently good and true and beautiful. And so when we are this, and we're expressing it, we need less, you know, like we, we're, we're coming from that sense of fullness. And that that can be a flavor of our leadership in the world. Like that's, that's exquisite. That's what it touches in me. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was saying. And, and I love the link you made, which maybe it also is worth being explicit about the link between beauty and aesthetics and all the ways people creatively express their own connection to divine realms through material artistic expression or life expresses it on the planet through its wild diversity of beauty. Uh, it is also a spiritual quality that we've sort of cut off in through our Cartesian emphasis on logical thought. And it's a dimension of life that is meant to be fuel for our journey. There's just no question. And so, yes, yes to everything you said. Well, again, I'm curious what you think about this, but it's almost like we're being invited to access different modes of knowing and being in these times, you know, other than you you said at the beginning, like not just being in our mind, intellectual minds, but I never want to just denigrate the intellect. So, but it's, it's, it's integrating it and including within these modes of knowing like the poetic mind, you know, and the, the, the erotic mind and, intuition and inspiration actually not as just things but as modes of intelligence that can can guide us precisely and this is the this is the sad part of how we've also denigrated the intellect we've relegated the intellect to logical rational thinking but actually we have all of these innate intelligences including the you know synthetic capacity to make meaning and to bring divergent ideas together and to imagine a world that never has presented itself yet um into being, 
Uh, it is through all of the diversity of intelligences that we have uh, hardwired into us and leave dormant for too long. And I think the practitioner path is to pursue all of those intelligences to excellence and then to reintroduce them back into the fabric of life by cultivating them in the executives we have the privilege to work with or the clients that we touch. And so I absolutely agree with you. It, it, it's, it's as if we're speaking in black and white and we need to be speaking in, you know, incredible color and vibrant color. And so we as artists in that sense, our responsibility is to keep, you know, diversifying our palette of color possibilities. I should have 42 kinds of blue on my palette. And then, and then when I meet you and you only have one, think about the possibility we become together. Yeah. Mm. So um, I like that idea, art, artistry, you know, so it speaks of, almost as like the, you know, an archetype of like we were practitioners and we're multidisciplinary, we're, we're artists. And so we're, we're creating and exploring and opening. Um, does that speak to you as something that we have to, you know, as practitioners do? So that's what you're just saying. Yeah, It resonates with me really deeply, Joel. And I, I really do think of us as, healers, as artists, as physicians, in the sort of classic sense of it, um, teachers, uh, community members, you know, co-citizens. Like we have lots and lots of responsibilities once we are on a journey of development uh, to participate in, not, in archetypal ways that are helping to shape healthier cultural architecture. I don't believe that intervening at an individual or team level, we should ever imagine that that caps it at what we can see. That person becomes a spark into the system and that whatever potential you unlock then becomes potentially unlocked in everybody they touch and everybody they, they come in contact with. So I think of individual development like we're talking about as very much an artistic practice, a very, very holy practice and something that has the possibility to remake the world. It's, it's, it's quite significant. I wanted mm. to add one more quality, if I could, yeah. to our stillness, attunement, uh, eros, uh, uh, cartography. So the fourth one I would add is, um, I mean, I suppose in the simplest way, you could say it's compassion. I, I think as practitioners, we have to be willing to dive into the dark depths of life and that we have to, we sort of alluded to this earlier, but we really have to cultivate our own tolerance for pain and suffering and witnessing uh, because there is not just individual difficulty in the lives of the clients we might come in contact with, but there's much in the fabric of humanity that needs to be restored. And we start to see now that in the pressure of COVID, many things that are fractures in society reveal themselves now as obvious impediments to a positive collective future. So the urgency with which these things need to be addressed is escalating. Thomas talks about this in terms of collective trauma, not just individual and family trauma but the collective trauma and COVID is a landscape trauma, meaning it's happening to everyone at the same time. So trauma competency and trauma capacity and a heart that can hold 
and lean towards what has been violated is the fourth quality, I would say. Mm. It, I want to ask you about that um, um, explicitly in a moment and, and just to set it in the context of um, the evolving nature of transformational work and coaching and facilitating and therapy um, in that you know, they're transforming what we know coaching to be, you know, and I haven't thought this through. I'm just saying it now, but one of the things I notice if we bring that word trauma anywhere near coaching is people get really sensitive about it, you know, and they are like, this is not the work for coaches, you know? Um, and I, and I, of course, um, you know, we should be mindful of our limits as practitioners and, um, you know, be highly attuned to where we, you know, I think this is what you've been saying. Yeah. Like we have to have done the deep work ourselves and we, we should never go beyond where we know we can go with people because we're just out of our depth there. Um, I guess like what I'm saying is like, whilst I feel that, you know, we have to be cautious. Um, I want to acknowledge the people that say like coaching isn't about trauma work. It's not therapy. I also sometimes feel like that. Where is that boundary? You know, like if you actually start to look, it's like if you want to do any kind of deep transformational work with somebody, you are going to encounter their pain and their, their trauma, you know? So in some ways, I'm also a bit frustrated about that because it, it kind of like closes things down. And, um, you know, like I think it behooves us in a way to, to keep doing this deep work and informing ourselves so that, you know, it's like screw the word coaching and the word therapy. Um, maybe I'm going to get some criticism for this. And I'm just saying this somewhat provocatively and playfully too, but um, it's like maybe we need a new word for like the kind of practitioner that can, go into the world and do this kind of work that you're outlining, you know, because it's about humanity. It's about moving through these times. So like maybe the old definitions are, are getting in the way of us doing that more artfully and skillfully. I think there's an and to what you're saying, Joel. So I, let me start by saying I share your conservative notion that, nobody should practice in an industry outside of their scope of practice training yeah. and, and competency. And each of us as practitioners knows the boundary of our psychological training, the boundary of our trauma training, and shouldn't take on engaging a client in a domain where it's outside of our field of comfort and our field of training. I agree with that completely. So let's say that trauma work is on a continuum. I'm, I would posit or I'm, I'm putting out a precept that I think all coaches and all practitioners of human development ought to cultivate the ability to stay present, open-hearted, and in relation to people's pain. That's, that's just one end of the continuum. And I do believe what you just yeah. said. That's the work of humanity. Like we are going to have to learn to hear each other's stories and generational stories and stories of what has unfolded in humanity. And that is, I really believe the work of being alive in this particular moment and this particular time is that from a soul perspective, we've signed up to be part of that repair. 
So that competency to care and to tolerate the discomfort and, and whatever arises in me, emotion, guilt, contraction, fear, I believe that maturation is being asked of all of us. And so that's, that's one end of the continuum. I also think that there are going to be uh, coaches and facilitators who choose to dedicate themselves to get more training and additional education to work with early attachment issues and trauma incidents with a competency skill set. Um, and that increasingly that's going to be within the acceptable domain of what coaching might include. Uh, so Mobius, for example, does, we color code our programs, green, yellow, red. So a green program is where we're really trying to teach a specific business skill or a technique or a t a share a tool like scenario planning or negotiation or performance feedback or effective team dynamics if I go to the other side of the continuum, a red program is four or five days in depth. It has group plenary work, and then it has each executive having two to three hours one-on-one -on -one with a therapeutic transformational coach in which they're really looking at their life story and their life journey and working in a significant way on their contracted mindsets, what we talked about earlier in our conversation. So already, I, I think we've been able to pioneer a leadership development experience that on the one hand really changes people's adaptive capacity from a business perspective, but takes equally seriously the need to help people make the beingness shifts you referred to earlier, Joel, through a process of, of depth work. So I'll just share one anecdote. I had an executive in one of these redder programs and on the last day, he said, you know, for 20 years, I've been told I'm a tremendously good entrepreneurial leader. I have good commercial capacity. I've been very successful. But every year when I get performance feedback, I get told I'm cold and people have a hard time approaching me. And I'm just not very good with people. And I haven't known what to do about that. And he said, so I've asked various coaches and I've asked various HR leaders. He probably didn't have very good coaches, I would infer. But in any event, he got very tactical advice, like take your team to a movie, and, you know, ask them about their kids, you know, sort of like tips of the trade uh, uh, were sort of how people tried to help him expand his capacity. And then he wrote this incredibly touching thing. He wrote on a flip chart, uh, a date, a uh, a lockbox and a heart. And he said, this week I discovered that on this date, X years ago, when my brother died, I put my heart in a box. And until I grieved the loss of my brother this week, I couldn't feel you and I couldn't feel me. Hmm. So when we're when somebody has had something that really caused them to feel less safe in life or to have to shut down the sort of contours of their heart, no amount of skill building will be sufficient to help them make the breakthrough that will give them back their life. You have to go into the terrain of that hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I found the same thing, you know, the, the, the work I do with people, it's like for that deep transformation to occur, you have to 
look at these things. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like a core part of what's playing out. Yeah. And I would say even for me um, in the work of, like you mentioned the word soul and, and we've talked about Eros and this sense of something coming through us. And I, I feel like soul is a good word to encapsulate a kind of, you know, you, you, leadership that, that could be emerging in the world. Um, you know, where, where like one is, um, I don't know if I would use the word transcended, but they're, they're, they, they've become free from their personality's conditioning. They've not rejected it, but they're, they're open to allow what, what wants to come through them uniquely into the world. And it has this aliveness and eros imbued within it. But, but that even that work, it's like it involves meeting like your core wounds, like those places that, you know, where, where that pain, that deep pain is, is located, where there was just this hurt and then a compensation for that hurt. And actually that that is the very doorway into that kind of soul expression. It's not something to be gotten rid of or, you know, the problem, but it's like, if it's met with love, it, it unfolds and reveals its secrets. And um, I think that yeah. is what the ultimately what the alchemists were telling us that in the wound is also the your core strengths, your your most essential life path and purpose is tied to those early wounds and the excavation and the integration of those hurts will enable you to then bring your full gifts into life. I fully believe that. Mm. This has been an exquisite conversation for me. Um, you know, I, I, I feel very grateful in this moment because, you know, talk about eros and alchemy. It's like I, this has been an alchemical conversation. Like I can feel what it stirs within me, within my soul, you know, and I'm, I'm wishing, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm imagining it will do the same for the people listening in right, you know, at home right now, whether they're, you know, in their kitchen, whether they're in their car driving to work or walking through mm -hmm. the forest, mm -hmm. that actually these conversations can be part of what is emerging in the world right now, you know, as no, we I come really together. I'm really touched by that, Joel. I hope that's true. And I would welcome people to, you know, write to us if they have questions or comments or contributions to this dialogue, because I do think it's the opening of soul into the world of business is one of the most important thresholds we're all standing on. And I'm sure all of us listening have something important to contribute to that unlock. And I'm very touched to have had this time with you. I wonder, mm. I hope it's okay, but I also do, would just love to let people know that the free seminars we've been offering uh, since the COVID crisis started are open sourced, available on our website in the Mobius Cares section, along with other COVID resources, uh, including a dialogue between my teacher, uh, Thomas Hubel, and Mobius senior expert, Otto Sharmer, who many of you may know. So please, if it's of use to you or your families or your communities, Find, find what you might need on Mobius Cares. That would be wonderful. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to make sure we're going to link to that in the email uh, that this podcast goes out in. Yeah, wonderful. We'll, we'll, we'll link directly to that as well. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that as a resource. I, you know, I think um, I, I see islands of 
um, practitioners um, coming together, you know, islands of um, sanity as Margaret Wheatley calls it, but like, you know, coming together and that being essential in these times too. Yeah. And, and along those lines, Joel, let me just bow on the path to you and uh, Lawrence and the work you've been doing in Coaches Rising. I think the fact that you are globally gathering a conversation about this craft and sharing and building a community of coaches that take really their life's work so seriously and with such generosity, I find it very, very inspiring. And I am grateful to have been part of your community, even for this moment in time. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. All right, take care. See you again. Yeah.